Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. He took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed, and Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh uh, shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are mine. And uh, the children that you fathered after them shall be yours, and they shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to uh, my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephraim. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. He said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. The eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph uh, took them both, took them both, uh, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn, and he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's hand. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. Uh, so he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then uh, Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, I've given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we cannot come to your word and understand it unless you are gracious and come to send your spirit to open our eyes to know its meaning, that you might apply it uh, to our lives, apply it to the life of this community, that we would hear the things that you would want us to hear. And uh, your word is so rich and um, so many pages of truth and accounts of 
your deeds uh, in the world and among your people. We ask that you'd be our teacher now and that you'd use these words uh, to um, uh, build up our faith, that we would trust in your promises and in your faithfulness more, and especially with regard uh, to the children in our midst. And uh, um, I pray that uh, these words would just be uh, helpful to those who are here and would be honoring to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, we... We're going to be looking at a. Uh, we're going to be talking about the, the topic of infant baptism, which I, I know many of you have different backgrounds. May on your level of interest for a sermon, may you know, maybe anywhere from one to ten, it's actually kind of a ten for me. Um, but uh, I know that uh, many of you come from different backgrounds. Uh, some of you may come. I know that because I've talked to you, have come from a background of churches where it's very odd to baptize a baby. Actually, you may have grown up and, and thought, you know, churches that baptize babies actually don't really believe the gospel. You know, because they don't really believe in children having to come to a faith of their own, so they just splash water in them, and it's just kind of this ceremony that they go through. And uh, it, it's, it's really a very odd thing. And um, yet, uh, I, I think there's no question that uh, this is the biblical pattern. Uh, the way God regards the children of believers, the children of his people. He regards them as his children, as, a, as in, as a part of the people of God. And uh, the passage that we just read, even though uh, it doesn't talk explicitly about infant baptism, it's not, you know, if I was to give you a proof text on where does the Bible say that you should baptize little babies, this is probably not the first passage I would go to. But what we see in this passage is a pr- the principle of covenant succession. And what I mean by covenant succession is that here's Jacob. Jacob is a man who God has chosen, God has worked in his life, God has made promises to, blessed him. And now all the promises, all the blessings that God has made to Jacob, he is now transferring onto his son Joseph. And actually he's adopting Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and making them his sons. And he's transferring all the blessings onto him. And essentially when we baptize a little baby, like we did this morning, that's exactly what we're doing. We're saying all the promises that are ours as, uh, as believers belong to our children. That's the pattern of the scriptures, is that the promise is not just for us, but also for our children. Now, uh, I, <laughs> I should say to you that uh, as we read this passage, you know, uh, Joseph brings his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to Jacob, and it talks about how Jacob puts them on his knees, and, and he kisses them, and he embraces them, and he blesses them. And we, there's actually this, uh, I have a, a, a Bible commentary that has a Rembrandt painting of this scene on it. And, and Ephraim and Manasseh are these cute little kitties that are coming, crawling up on Jacob. You know, Jacob's all old. Actually, if you do the chronology, they're about 20 uh, when this is happening. <laughs> so you might say, okay, is this really a good analogy for infant baptism? Because they're 20 and they're coming up and they're getting blessed by their grandfather. Does that have anything uh, to do with what we're talking about? Well, actually, it does. Because one of the important things is we read the book of Genesis... And we understand, what is this book about? What's, what's, why is all this being written? What's it for? The first thing we need to ask is, who was this originally written to? Who is the original audience of the book of Genesis? And the original audience is, uh, uh, um, is the Exodus community, the 12 tribes of Israel who had just come out of Egypt. 
And now Moses is writing to them this story about their forefathers and the promises that God had made to them. And they're listening to this story. So all these people, of these tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, are listening to this story. And even though this happened hundreds of years before, how they're supposed to read this is when, when Jacob put his blessing on Ephraim and Manasseh, their father, their forefather, the blessing was upon them. They weren't even born yet. And they were inheriting the blessings and the promises of God. And that's the same thing that happens with our children. The same thing, and actually this pattern, that God will be our God and a God also to our children, is a promise uh, that you see also in the New Testament. In the very beginning of, uh, uh, of the New Testament, the first sermon that's given after Jesus' resurrection, Peter gives this sermon. There's 3,000 people that are cut to the heart. And they say, wow, Jesus is the Messiah. He's risen from the dead. What should we do? And Peter says, well, you should repent. And, uh, and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and you'll receive the promise of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to as many as the Lord our God will call. Uh, all those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And that promise remains, this promise in the Old Testament where the promise is transferred to the children, this covenant succession, this passing down of the promise remains true in the New Testament. And um, so that's true for us. And so that's why we baptize uh, babies in our church. But I think um, it's more than just a ritual. It's more than something where we come and invite the family and take pictures and isn't that cute, the baby's getting splashed on. I think that this act, this thing that we do where we baptize a baby has huge ramifications for how we view children and how we raise them, for our parenting. And how we as a church who have all these little kids in here, how, how we participate, you know, you just took that vow to participate in assisting these parents and raising their, these children in the Christian nurture. This baptism plays a huge role in that. And so I want to ex- spend a little time this morning explaining how that works. And um, in particular, I want to make three points. And these are the three points. Is that first, infant baptism is the hope of good parenting. In order to parent, we need hope. We need to believe that God is at work in, the, in, our, in the, the lives of our children. But second, infant baptism is also the key to good parenting. It actually shapes, how, in a day-to-day life, how we interact with our children. That's really true. It's, I'm, hopefully I'll explain that and convince you that. What, what just happened with Bruce will, can have a, a day-to-day impact on his life his whole childhood as he grows up in his home. But third, infant baptism, so infant baptism is the hope of good parenting. Infant baptism is the key to good parenting. But third, infant baptism is also the subversion of good parenting. Infant baptism is a statement on the limitations that a, of what a parent can do in a child's life. So it's not, it's, it's, it's the hope, it's the key, but it's also the subversion. We're going to look at all three of those uh, this morning. So first, infant baptism is the hope of good parenting. Now, um, I didn't grow up in a Christian church, so I'm gonna I'm gonna describe a little bit what the American church is like, even though I didn't experience it. But I've talked to a lot of people who have did grow up in the church, and they've confirmed that this was this is not gonna be all of you, the experience for all of you, but this was an experience for many people of what it's like to grow up in the church, because in in uh, in the vast majority of the American church, when a child grows up uh, in a context like this it's not really clear whether they're a Christian or not, right? They're kind of a half-Christian because they're going to have to wait until they, uh, until they come to a certain age where they're at an age of accountability. Maybe they're in middle school or something. Uh, when they go to camp and they 
hear a presentation of the gospel and they experience Christ and they uh, really accept Jesus into their heart, that's when they become a full-fledged Christian. That's kind of the, the American evangelical pattern of, how, uh, of the Christian life. And, uh, and hopefully when you accepted Jesus into your heart and you had all those emotions and you had all that zeal and you had all that commitment, hopefully when you go back to school the next week, you know, that doesn't fade away because if it does fade away, you might have to go back to camp next year and go through it again, you know, to really make sure it sticks. And, um, and this may sound, uh, and, and I think there's, a, there's reasons for that that I think makes sense. There is a sense as kids grow up that they're going to have to embrace the faith for themselves, they're independent of their parents. But there's a question of up until the time that they're 12, what is their status up until that point? And what ends up happening is the kids grow up in the Christian church and they're treated as half Christians, which means they have to do everything that the Bible says. They have to obey all the commandments. And yet they don't get any of the promises that God has given them. They don't get any of the promises. And, um, and which is really, um, this is an odd uh, pattern to treat children as half Christians who would get all the law, but they don't get any of the grace. And... Um, Uh, because we say that kids need to reach an age of accountability before they can be fully Christian. But what we are saying to kids through this critical time where their identity is being formed is we're saying you are not with us or with God until you prove to us that you're really spiritual. Do you hear that statement? When we say to kids, you need to prove to us that you're spiritually mature, that you really get this, we're sending a constant message that God is keeping you at arm's length until you prove that you're spiritually mature, which is the opposite of what the gospel says. The gospel says, actually, if you want to be a Christian, you have to have childlike faith. You need to come into the kingdom like a child. We need to become like them. And yet we, we keep them at arm distance. And so, uh, and so kids grow up with this question of, am I really a Christian or am I not a Christian? And this pattern is totally foreign to how the Bible views the children of believers, um, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. What we see in this passage um, is we see how Jacob views his grandchildren, um, who actually, even though, you know, I mentioned that they're 20, Ephraim and Manasseh don't say anything during this whole passage. They're totally passive. Actually, Joseph brings them. They don't even come of their own initiative. They just come, and and Joseph says, you're going to get the blessing, and God places his blessing on them. And this is what it says. Look at verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him uh, his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up. And then listen to what Jacob says. And Jacob said to Joseph, and, and Jacob is here going to recount his own Christian life, his own spiritual life of how he came to know God. God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So he, God had chosen him. He'd come into a relationship with God. He, he, he had trusted in, in God, in God, in Christ. Well, in God, he didn't know Christ at that time. Um, and God had blessed him. And then he says, And now to your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to, uh, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. 
And what he's saying by that inheritance is all the things that God has promised to me are now theirs, are their possession. It is being transferred and passed on to them. And so when, what Jacob is saying is that when God saved him, when God rescued him and drew him to himself and blessed him and made promises to him, those weren't just for him, but they were also for generations after him. Um, and so what that means is that for any of us, when God has worked in our life, when God has drawn us to himself, the work that God is doing is not just for us. It's not just for my life. So when God, you know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and when God rescued me, and I was an atheist, and he revealed himself to me, and opened his word to me, and sent his spirit on me, he wasn't just saving Nate Walker. He, his intention is to work through a whole generation of people. And actually, I, I just recently, my parents uh, found this letter uh, dated 1845 is my great great grandfather's uh, a letter that was written to him and uh, as far as I knew I, I didn't know any Christians in my family and here's a man several generations back turns out he was licensed to preach in the Presbyterian church you know I'm a Presbyterian minister and uh, several generations later I was like why I'd always wondered you know why did God all of a sudden work in my life I hated God I didn't even believe in him I thought the Bible was ridiculous and all of a sudden God plucks me out and says you're going to be mine why I think part of that is I he had made promises generations back that he was making good on in me and, um, and I'll tell you, when Shannon and I got married, we had just learned about infant baptism, that, that God makes promises not just to us, but to our children. And actually, that was one of the reasons we wanted to have children, was because, uh, because there was hope that God was going to work in their life. God had made promises to them. And that, get, that inspired us to have children. That motivated us to have children. They became a blessing to us. And what happens is you look through the Bible is that children are always considered a part of the covenant. Uh, throughout the scriptures. And, you know, another place that you see this is in the New Testament. Uh, in the book of Ephesians, and this also happens in the book of Colossians, uh, Paul begins this letter to the Ephesians, and he says to all the saints who are in Ephesus. And so he's writing to all these Christians in Ephesus, and he tells all these things. He says, you were chosen before the foundations of the earth. And you have the Holy Spirit as a, a guarantee of your inheritance. And God's saved you um, by grace, through faith. It is not of your works. You're not saved by works. You're saved by grace, by what Christ has done for you. And God has prepared good works for you that you just walk in them and do them. And he's just blessing. And all these things that God has promised, all these things that God has done for these saints. And then you get to chapter 6. And Paul says, And children, obey your parents, for this is right in the Lord. Children, obey your parents. And all of a sudden, the way Paul sees all the children that are part of the, the, the church is they're a part of those saints. And all those promises leading up to them, uh, leading up to there, belong to those children also. And what happens in the church is so many kids grow up and they learn, children, obey your parents. Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents. Children, obey your parents. And they, and they think that's what the whole Bible is full of. Children, obey your parents. But actually, in Ephesians, that was one verse out of six full chapters, chock full of promises that God, that you were chosen before the foundations of the earth. You have the Holy Spirit. God has saved you by grace. You don't have to prove yourself to God. You're saved by free grace. And what that means um, is that's the way God views them, is that all those promises belong to them just as they belong to us. Now, one of the questions you're going to ask, you say, well, now, don't those kids need to believe for themselves? You're just saying they automatically get all these blessings, like you baptize them and they're magically Christians, and, and don't they need to believe for themselves? Absolutely. And I'll tell you, you know, with my children, I'm constantly inviting them to make professions of faith. I, I mean, every week, 
maybe every day. Anytime something comes up, you know, and we talk about the Lord, and the Lord, you know, the Lord is faithful, and he loves us. And do you believe that? Do you believe that God loves you? Yeah, I do. And, uh, and you know, you know, if they're being disciplined, if they're, if they're being disobedient or something, and we're, we're addressing those things, we ask him, you know, Jesus has, has taken your heart of sin, of stone, and he's poured his Holy Spirit into your heart. Do you believe that? Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. The reason you believe it is because the Holy Spirit's at work in your life. And so um, what we're constantly doing is, yes, do they need to make a profession of faith? Yes. But by the time they can start talking, we're going to invite them to continue to affirm, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I love Jesus. Yes, I want to be in. And that confirms in them that faith. And what happens is if we say that they can't be a full Christian until they're 12, we're never going to ask them, do you really believe? Or if we do, we're not going to take them seriously. And we're going to say, that's not real faith. You're not old enough to be a true Christian and so the first thing here, and, um, and, and, and what this means is this tells us something about God. God intends for his grace to run through the lines of generations. That's the natural flow of where he wants his grace to flow. He wants it to flow down, downward to our children. He wants it to flow that way. And actually, there's a, a pastor in Tacoma, Rob Rayburn, uh, in our presbytery, who I, I had learned a lot about covenant succession and infant baptism from. And just recently, he, was, he said he found, he was looking through his binder where uh, he's been a pastor for 35 years. And it has all the names of all the children that he's baptized over those 35 years. And uh, where he had taught them that we're going to treat these kids, when we baptize them, we're going to treat them as Christians. And we're going to disciple them as Christians and, and tr- raise them as Christians. And he went through all the names of the people that he still had contact with. 94% of those kids, he said, were still walking with the Lord. 94%, which actually, statistics say that, that 50 to 70% of the kids that are growing up in the church uh, walk away when they, when they leave high school. 50 to 70%. And how much of that is because we're just not treating them as Christians? We're telling them for, uh, for 18 years, you need to prove yourself to us if I'm going to really treat you as a Christian. And imagine if we did that to each other. Imagine if that's what I got up and said to you every week. You need to prove, you know, I'm not going to, we're not going to, this assurance of pardon that Daniel just read, we're not going to give it to you until you've really proved that you're a good Christian. That would crush you. And so what infant baptism says is it frees us to dump the promises of God all over our children. And they would grow up saying, the thing I know about the Bible is about a God who is faithful to his promises and loves sinners. And so when we've embraced that, see how much hope infant baptism gives us about our children. Okay? It, gives us, it gives us hope that God has made his promises. And I'm going to come back to that. But the second thing is that infant baptism is also the key to good parenting. It's not just the hope for good parenting. It's the key for good parenting. And uh, because... There's always um, this element in which, uh, tied to, you know, when uh, uh, the Locatels were up here, they were getting baptized, they also took vows and said, you know, it's not just that God's made promises to his children, but we're going to raise them as Christians. And we have a role in this to, to disciple them and to teach them about the faith, to bring them into the church. And what that means is that, um, that uh, God pledges his promises to these children, but God also uses certain means to communicate his blessings to these children. And the parent, us as parents and, and as a congregation are the means that God uses to show his promises to them. And uh, let me just take a moment to pause. An important passage about this is earlier in Genesis, Genesis 17 and 18, where uh, Abraham, Abraham is kind of the first, he's kind of the first Christian. He's the first, God is making a people for himself. 
and uh, Abraham believes in the Lord. And the Lord accepts him because of his faith. And, uh, and so Abraham's in this relationship with God. God makes a covenant with him. And then all of a sudden, it, God says to Abraham, you know what, I'm going to give you a sign and a seal of this relationship that we have, circumcision. And uh, circumcision is a mark so that you know that you belong to me because you've believed in me, you've trusted me, you've followed me. And then he says, I want you to take that mark and I want you to put it on your eight-day-old son, Isaac. Here's, here's Abraham's believed in the Lord and received God's promises by faith, and yet God says, I want you to put that mark on your eight-day-old son. And circumcision and baptism are actually really closely tied together because circumcision is a sign of what? Circumcision of the heart. The cutting away of sin. The new life that we have inside. Baptism is a sign of what? The washing of, away of sin. The new life, the in, in, internal life. Both of them are a sign of the new life that we have in Christ. Circumcision has the shedding of blood, but Christ is now our circumcision. He, his blood was shed for us. So now we have baptism with no shedding of blood, which is the new sign, the sign of the new covenant. But circumcision is pointing forward to Christ, and baptism is pointing backwards to Christ and what he's done for us. And so... Um, so Abraham takes this sign and he puts it on his eight-day-old son and says, all these promises belong to you too. But then God says this in Genesis 18. For I have chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. And so tied to Abraham is just not just these promises, but also that, you know, you're going to teach these things to the Lord. You're going to, you're going to teach the, your children about who the Lord is. Now, if I had a sermon series, I could talk about what all that looks like and unpack that, and uh, maybe I'll do that uh, later next year. But, um, but, you know, that involves all kinds of things. You know, we bring our kids to church. They worship with us, and we, uh, we love them. We serve them. We show them the love of Christ, the joy of the gospel, right? We pray for them. And um, uh, we discipline them and diligently discipline. We teach them the scriptures. But I think underneath all those things, those practical things that God calls us to do as parents, is infant baptism actually gives us a lens by which we see our children. And that's really the key to, to biblical parenting. And, and as a congregation to raise these children, if you're not a parent and you play a role in raising these children, is the lens. And what... Um, there's two things, the infant why, two things that, that we see in this passage that infant baptism does. It changes how we view our children. It changes how we view them. And it also changes how they view us. And let me explain what I mean by that. Look at verse 10. Um, so Joseph brings these boys, um, these grandchildren. Uh, uh, Joseph brings grandchildren to Jacob to bless them. And it says in verse 10, Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. So it's a beautiful picture. Jacob's at the end of his life, and his grandchildren, who he's been away from up in Canaan for a long time, he's finally really meeting them, and he gets to pray over them at the end of his life, and they're a delight to him. And part of the reason, you know, the, why are they so delightful? Why does he, he want to embrace them, and, he, and they're so close to him? It's part, you know, maybe it's, you know, well, they're 20, so they're not cute. It's not the cuteness that, uh, about them. But uh, the reason that they're so dear to him is because they are tokens to him of God's faithfulness. They show him God's faithfulness and God's promise. God's promise is on their life. They're a living embodiment of the faithfulness of God. 
and they um, become dear to him um, because God's promise is upon them. And it's imperative for us, especially for those of you who are parents, that we see our children in that way, that they are people that God's promise is, God, is upon and God is working in. And let me just, let me give an example of that, because I know many, many of you have young children, of, of what this looks like for young children. Because if you have young children, one of the things you're, you're doing often is dealing with sin, you're disciplining, you know, kids are fighting with each other, or they're, they're disobeying, or they're lying, or they're hitting each other, and you're dealing with this all the time, and as you discipline them, you know, for us, I, you know, bring the kid in another room, I'm going to talk to him, or I'm going to discipline them, and, uh, and what does that conversation look like? And I know for me, you know, there's an aspect, you know, you're trying to keep an, a house orderly, so sometimes it's just like, listen, you can't do that in this house, period. Stop doing it, okay? You know, some of that happens, but for the most part, is that, is that what God says to us? Do you come here and God says to you every week, stop doing all your bad stuff. Stop it. Does that work? No. You say, okay, maybe for 10 minutes, then you leave, and it just doesn't work. It doesn't change you, right? The thing that changes you is you hear about God's faithfulness and love to you, that despite your sin, he loves you, and he's put his mark on you, and, and he's never going to forsake you, and the, he's promised the Holy Spirit to you that even though you, you can't change your own life, he'll change you. And, and his forgiveness and grace softens you so that you want to love him. And this should be the message that our kids hear as we instruct them is to say, listen, uh, you know, I, I used to, I, this was a realization I had is, as I used to say to my kids, and I'm, I may still say this, it's not I stop saying this, but you know, I might, you know, they, maybe they do something to their mom and I'm addressing it. And I say, well, why are you treating your, don't you love your mom? Was that all? Why don't you treat her with love? You know, it's not loving to lie to your mom or hit your mom or something like that. Why, why don't you love your mom? And I realized that um, it's not so much about them realizing that they love their mom, but they need to realize that their mom loves them. Their mom is a surrogate of who God is in their life. Look at, God has put a mom in your life who serves you and loves you and cares for you. You are a loved child. And God, God has promised you, you know, uh, my two youngest are twins, are twins. they're uh, four-year-old Molly and Henry. And uh, they just recently started coming to the Lord's table. And, uh, you know, as they're fighting with each other and I'm, I'm talking to them, one of the things that I, I could say to them is say, listen, hey, did you come to the Lord? Did you have the bread and wine this week? Yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, I did have the bread and wine. Why did you have the bread and wine? Because Jesus loves me. Jesus loved me first. And I'll tell you, the more they hear that, I'm loved. The reason you were hurting your brother and sister, the reason you were dis disrespecting your mom is because you forgot that you were loved. You forgot that you were one of God's beloved children. And uh, you need to remember that. And you need to see that the Spirit is at work in your life. That's what infant baptism frees us to do. And I even tell my kids that. They say, how do you know God loves you? Well, were you baptized? Did you come to the Lord's table this week? Yeah, I did. And for, especially for young children, when they come to the table, oh yeah, I came to the Lord's table. God must love me. Jesus must love me because I was with God's people and I was there. And that continual message that they're in is the thing that softens their hearts just as it softens our hearts. Um, and that's the thing that changes us because over and over again, the scriptures say because Christ, first, because Christ first loved us, we should love each other. That's what changes us. And so they need to have the promises of God if they're going to do the things that God has commanded uh, them to do. And um, let, me just, let me just make one more comment about that. I think it's, it's really important as parents that we see that God is at work in our children. Because um, we have certain things we want them to behave, we want them to be good. 
And that can turn into the constant message of be better, be better, be better. But we need to also see that the Holy Spirit is at work in their lives. And so when you leave church and a kid, your kid makes a comment about, oh, I, I remember something from the sermon, or I like that song in church, or they do an act of compassion to, to someone, or, or they show some joy, whatever it is, to name that and say, you know what, the only way you're loving people, the only way you're listening to the Bible, or the only reason that you believe in God is because the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. And they need that encouragement to be like, oh, God's Spirit is at work in me. And that's the lens with which we see them, is that God's promises are in them, the Holy Spirit is at work in them, and they should hear that their whole childhood is God has surrounded me with his promises and made blessings to me. And they should feel that security as they grow up that God has been faithful to them, okay? So baptism makes grace central to our parenting. Baptism makes grace central to our parenting. But it doesn't just change how we view them, it also changes how they view us. And uh, look at verse, verse 12 in this passage. So here's Manasseh and Ephraim. This wasn't their idea. They were brought to this blessing, this time of prayer. And it says, Then Joseph removed, from, uh, removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. Joseph begins to worship. They're watching their dad worship. And then in verse uh, 15, J- they're, they're brought to him, and Jacob... Uh, uh, blesses them, and Jacob blessed Joseph and said, listen to, listen to them hear their grandfather talk. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. You see that? The God who's been faithful to me, the God who's been a shepherd to me, the God who's redeemed me, be, bless these boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my uh, fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And what they're doing is they're watching, Ephraim and Manasseh are watching their father and grandfather worship, and they're being brought in to the worship. They're becoming fellow worshipers with their parents and with, and with, their, and with their grandparent. And um, what happens is if we say to kids for much of their childhood, you're not a full Christian. What we're going to inevitably do is say, there is a part of my spiritual life that you don't have a part in. Until you've proven that you're a full Christian, you don't have a full share in this. And this is one of the reasons, when we say that kids, are, when we baptize them, they are in. They are part of God's people. That's part of the reason that we have kids. Uh, kids, that's part of the reason why you're here in this worship service. And you might not even, under, you might be like, that's a lot of talking. I don't know even know what he's talking about. But the reason that you are here is because, you're ba- because if you've been baptized, you're a part of God's children. Uh, you're a part of God's household. You are one of God's children. And so um, we want them to be here because one of the most important things that can happen in, 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 these, in the life of these children is even if they don't understand all the things that I'm saying, they see us worshiping. And so it's important, it's not only for us to see God at work in their lives, but for them to see God at work in our lives. Is, uh, and they see that I'm fellow worshipers. I'm a part of what God is doing in my parents' life. And, um, you know, one of the most important aspects of that will be how they see us deal with sin. Right? Because I mentioned that infant baptism, should, when we deal with our children's sin and we're disciplining them, that grace should, in the baptism, their identity in Christ should shape how we lead them and instruct them. But also that's true for how we deal with our sin. When they see that we repent to them when we're angry, when we're frustrated, when we're moody, and we come to them and we ask them for forgiveness and we humble ourselves with them. 
And we pray with them and ask for God's grace. When they see that, they see, you know what? Jesus shows grace to sinners. My parents, to me. And in, even though we have sin in our family, it's still possible that we could have joy and we could have love despite our, our sin and despite our problems. And they see that's what Jesus is. is he's, a, he's a savior. He's not this tyrant who's just laying burdens on them. He's a savior who's breathing life into, into our family. And uh, they are fellow Christians with us, okay? And um, what this means also is the third, this really leads to the third thing that I want to say about infant baptism. So first, it's the hope of our parenting. It's also the key to our parenting. It, it informs how we see our children and how they see us. But third, infant baptism is also the subversion of good parenting. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, um, because what we just did here when the Locatels came up and they brought their baby and we put uh, Daniel, put water on this baby's head, is actually a radically countercultural activity. Uh, you might not have noticed that, but one of the um, standard understandings of children that our culture has is that children are born what? Innocent, pure, clean. If there's one time of your life where you're pure and you're innocent and you're clean, it's when you're a little baby. And so for us to now say, this baby needs to be washed, this baby needs to be cleansed from sin, this baby is actually, what we're saying is not innocent. And what we're saying is actually the monster that lives in all, each one of us, the monster of, of, of pettiness and self-righteousness and bitterness and anger and violence and lust, that monster that's living inside of each one of us is living inside the baby too. That is a tremendously countercultural statement. And, um, and yet, what we're saying, listen to what it says when we put water on this child. What are the Locatels saying? They're saying, no matter how good of parents we are, uh, if, we, if we do everything right, we love them well, we, uh, we read all the right books on parenting, um, we, we teach them, we bring them to church every week. Ultimately, what has to happen in Bruce's life is a supernatural act of grace that parenting can't do. And all, all, uh, infant baptism is saying God needs to work in this child's life. And uh, I'll, sh I'll show you what we see in this passage because what often happens for us is as Christian parents, we have a vision of who our we want our children to be. We have a vision of what their story is going to be, what their path is going to be, and what God is gonna, how God's going to work in their life. And Joseph um, had that plan as well, right? Uh, Manasseh was his oldest son, and, and as he was approaching Jacob for Jacob to bless them, he lined them up just right. He said, Manasseh's going to go to the right hand because he's the firstborn, and the firstborn is going to be the greater son, and I know what God's going to do with him, and Ephraim is the younger son. He's going to go to the left hand. And then Jacob does this switch, right? And he says, no, you got it all wrong, Joseph. Uh, I'm not, the, the plan wasn't the plan that you thought you had. Uh, the, the plan wasn't the plan that you thought that God was doing. And this is what it says in verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. God was not working according to the plan that he, was, he had for his children. And he took his father's hand. Listen to the, listen to the control in this statement. And he took his father's hand to move it from uh, Ephraim's hand, uh, head, uh, to Manasseh's head. And what Joseph wants to do is he thinks that the blessing of God, the promises of God on our children are something that he can use to control his children. 
and to, and to, that uh, he can feel a sense of, of assurance and certainty about what their life is going to be, and he doesn't. That's not what the promise is. And what he, how he envisions parenting is he thinks he's like a carpenter, and the children are like a piece of wood, and uh, his hammer is the blessing of God, the promises of God. God has promised me that these children will turn out how I want them to. And yet he's got it totally backwards. God is the carpenter. And actually, parents are the hammer. God uses parents as part of the, you know, as, well, this is probably bad. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, you, uh, the, uh, God uses parents in the children's life to shape them, absolutely. But ultimately, God is the one who is in control. And, um, and what this says to us is what are our dreams for our kids? What do we expect for them? Their jobs, their education, their personalities, the things they like, the sports they're involved in, how smart they are. All these things are our priorities. And what infant baptism from the beginning, what we're saying is that what this child needs is God's supernatural work of grace. And what that work of grace does is it, it undermines actually all of our plans. And the things that God prioritizes is that this child would know the grace of God in Christ and, would, and that grace would cause them to become a loving person, would soften their hearts so that they would serve others. That's God's plan. And that's, that's his ultimate purpose in their life. And um, it, uh, it, it's such a different goal of parenting than anything that the world has to offer. And, um, and Jacob has come to understand that, that God does not work according to, the, to our purposes and our plans. And you see that in verse 18. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He's come to know that God's sovereign purposes don't work according to our purposes. Um, God, uh, Jacob knows that God's purposes and ways are different than our plans. And I'll tell you, part of the reason this is important is because some of you say, you know, this is beautiful that God makes promises to our children, and I can rest in those promises. I can pray for my children according to those promises. But, you know, it doesn't always work out that way, right? Christian children grow up in the church, and they don't always stay in the church. And that may be because we're not treating them as Christians, but also there's plenty of people who do raise their kids as Christians, treat them as Christians, speak the promises of God to them, bring them to worship, love them, and serve them, and yet those kids, uh, maybe you have kids that are, are, that are not, uh, not walking with the Lord right now. What do we do with those things? What do we do with those promises? Well, you know, first of all, again, I'm not the carpenter, and God knows his purposes and his plans. And we should uh, take these promises and put them before God and say, God, you've made promises to our children. Um, but actually, there's uh, the Westminster Confession, which uh, Daniel read a little bit from during the baptism, has a really important statement where it says that the promises of baptism are not necessarily tied to the moment of administration. And let me tell you what I mean by that is that the important act of the Holy Spirit, the supernatural act that, that needs to happen in Bruce's life, maybe didn't happen right now. It may have happened right now, but it may didn't. maybe it didn't. And it may happen later in life. And actually, uh, some of you know Nick Van, who's a, a member of our church. Uh, and he was actually, he was, he was one of the first core group members of our church when we were meeting in our living room. And he, was, and he, he had just recently become a believer, and he said, you know, I want to get baptized. I, I had just become a Christian, I want to get baptized, and we had it all planned. And then the day before the baptism, I was meeting with him, talking through the baptismal vows. 
And he said, uh, you know, I just, by the way, I forgot to mention to you, I was actually baptized when I was a, a little kid, but um, I was a baby. But then my parents, when I was three, they left the church and they never went back. And I never went back to church. And now he's, he became a Christian in his 30s. And he said, it really didn't mean anything. And, but for me, baptism is about God's promise. And I began to tell him, you know what? Even though your parents walked away from the church, even though they didn't teach you uh, the promises of God, God made good on that baptism, even when you were in your 30s. And uh, it was God's commitment to you. And as I told him that, he began to just light up and he said, you know what? Even as I was walking away from the Lord, even as my heart was hard towards him and I was making foolish decisions, I see that God's hand, he was near me and he was following me and he was hunting me down and he was with me and ultimately he drew me to himself. That God, um, this, we don't know, we don't have certainty. But these are promises that God's make that we put before him and we, we rest in those. And this is the big difference between an infant baptism and the baptism when a kid becomes 18 and makes a commitment for themselves. So when we baptize a baby, this is not about this baby's commitment to God. This is about God's commitment to this baby, which is way stronger than me coming later and saying, I'm going to make a commitment to God. God's promise stands. And that's what we rest on as parents, and that's what we rest on as a church, that our hope is that these kids will grow up and they would raise Christian kids. And we'd see generations who love God and worship him in Bellingham. Let's pray together. Our Lord, uh, we ask for your blessing on all these covenant kids that you've brought to our church. Would you uh, work in their lives? Would you um, help us to rest in your promises so that they would learn to rest in your promises and that we would see your faithfulness as they grow up? And Lord, as parents, uh, we need your grace um, that you uh, would send us your spirit, that you would give us wisdom, that you'd teach us to view our children according to your word. Help us as a congregation that we would encourage one another and uh, uh, learn from one another. Continue to teach us from your word. We thank you for your many promises to us in Christ's name.